Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Rowan Hooper. This is the show where we feature science-adjacent and science-influenced stuff from the world of culture. Now, on this week's show, we're going to talk about a new film called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Now, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you might remember that I interviewed a Swedish academic a few years ago called Andreas Malm about his book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And it's basically a manifesto calling for the escalation of climate action to go beyond peaceful protest and to become destructive. And now that's been turned into a film. And it's not a documentary, uh, but it's a movie about a group of activists who, who decide to actually do that, to go and blow up an oil pipeline. So I wanted to talk about all this. And I'm delighted to be joined in the pod today by the director, Daniel Goldhaber, the lead actor and co-screenwriter, Ariella Berra, and the movie editor, Daniel Garber. Welcome all. Thanks for joining the pod. Thanks for having us. Ariella, can you kick us off? Tell us how it started. How did you first encounter the book? The project was born out of this moment in early pandemic times. We were all in lockdown and feeling awful about the world and our place in the world. And Jordan, Daniel and I were sort of all kind of potted together in this lockdown. And Jordan found the book and he had always kind of wanted to adapt a piece of academic text into a movie. And he kind of brought it to Daniel as research for another project within Daniel got excited about adapting that text itself and then kind of brought it to me and we all got really excited about it. And then on one strange day, I just wrote up the first 10 pages of the script after months of us researching. And that kind of just got us out of the gate with the tone and sort of pacing that like propulsive energy of the movie and our ensemble cast kind of drove us forward into a seven-month mania of just writing the script and financing the movie and getting it all done in this um, kind of crazy, unconventional way. I was going to ask how it went from being a formal book to an action movie. There's more than enough documentary and nonfiction about climate change, and I think that part of what we wanted to do was to make something that could kind of exist in this more mainstream cultural space, because I think that something that something that the left is very good at is isolating itself and, and you know, 
reinforcing the fact that leftism and progressivism is a niche that doesn't engage with the wider culture and the wider political culture. And so I think, you know, this notion of taking this book and trying to kind of move these ideas into the mainstream vernacular felt like a really productive thing to do. And also, you know, just frankly, we all love genre movies. We all love heist movies. And I think it it felt like both a very exciting political proposition, but also just like an exciting creative proposition. And some of this work, you know, also stretches back to, you know, Dan and I went to school together and we studied in a documentary film program, but always with kind of the aspirations and the desire and love of of kind of Hollywood cinema and commercial cinema. And so that's even work that also, you know, stretches back to we've been working together for 14 years and to us trying to kind of crack this sense of, you know, how can we take this kind of stuff that we've been studying and these ideas that we care about and translate them to kind of a, a bigger, broader canvas. And so, you know, there's definitely like a continuum of work there for, for all of us. Yeah, you mentioned your love of heist movies. The blurb for the film says, a crew of young environmental activists execute a daring mission to sabotage an oil pipeline. If you just read that, you might think it's like a people all dressed in black and a special ops mission, Mission Impossible type thing. You know, it does have action and tension in it, but there's very much a, a human story to, to this movie that, that you might not get if you just say, oh, it's a heist movie. Can you talk about that and that, that decision to really go that, that route? When it came to adapting the text into a film, you know, I think the thing that became clear very quickly in the process was that we needed to figure out the kinds of people and the, you know, that, that would do something like this and why they would do something like this. And as we started writing the script, that why became more, a more and more prominent part of the process, you know. And so, as Ariella said, you know, we had uh, about two months of research before we actually started writing. And, and that was really comprised of just meeting with activists and journalists and, you know, thinkers in this space, but also, you know, looking around our lives and thinking about the people that we knew who, you know, had experiences where, you know, they may be radicalized themselves or, you know, into something like this. And I think that the more that we we talked about those stories and those motivations and the more that we kind of thought about them, the more important that felt like it became, not just from the standpoint of wanting to, you know, do justice to those experiences and to kind of the kaleidoscopic nature of how much, you know, how far reaching climate changes and climate injustices in the US. But also the fact of the matter is, is like, I think that those empathetic stories and those empathetic reasons that all those people have, that is the appeal of the film. That is the that is the thing that makes the movie relatable. And that is the thing that hopefully many different people can come to this film, maybe even people who wouldn't necessarily see eye to eye with this action. But through seeing the film and through learning about these characters, maybe there is one of those backstories that they really connect to and they see themselves here and they say, wow, I am now empathizing and inserting myself into this in a way I never thought possible. And I think that that can start a thought process that, that, that can be very productive. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What people have said about Andreas Malm and, and his approach is that it could alienate people who do support the environmental movement if it becomes destructive so is that something that you're concerned about? That has been a concern that has often been kind of wielded to quell moments of activism. The hypothetical alienation of escalation of tactics. It doesn't mean that it might not, that it, that it could alienate people. But I think that in the film, we did want to grapple with the consequences of an action like this. But I think that those consequences are significantly more concrete than like, again, the hypothetical center that is going to be alienated by an act of, you know, potentially justified self-defense. There are, again, genuine consequences to blowing up a pipeline for the activists, for the local community, for the environment, for the economy, you know, and these are things that we wanted to acknowledge in the film. But I think that this notion that like, oh, somebody's going to escalate tactics and now all of a sudden the mainstream is going to abandon the climate movement. It's like cities are falling into the sea. People are dying. Heat waves are becoming worse. We're like approaching like a global famine state. Like, come on, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, it is, it is a little bit, you know, compared, compared to what exactly? <laughs> the idea that we need some sort of uh, social mandate or some level of social approval of the climate movement. I don't know. It's strange that that has become such a priority in and of itself. The idea is ultimately that getting public approval is a pathway to making meaningful change. But the thing is, now there is pretty widespread public approval of the climate movement, but that doesn't mean that there's been much meaningful change around this issue. So the question is, how, where do we go from here? You know, just currying favor with the public or with every member of the public is not necessarily a path to actually saving the planet. So I think we really have to reckon with, you know, what how many people are we willing to alienate if it also presents this possibility of, of actually achieving some lasting change? This question also, it also ignores that throughout history, there have been plenty of instances where people have escalated tactics. And inevitably, that has alienated some people. But in a lot of cases, that has also been very productive. I mean, this is the whole idea of the radical flank theory in, in Andreas's book, but that sometimes having a more radical wing of a movement can actually help people galvanize around a more made mainstream approach to solving that problem. Were you tempted to go further than Andreas Malm in a work of fiction? Because it kind of reminded me of Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, The Ministry for the Future. And in that, there's a, a black ops wing that, you know, they do out and out terrorism and, and kill oil executives. And I think in the movie, that one character suggests doing that, doesn't he? And another he one suggests, says, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, no, he, su he asks, it, Sean asks Sochi, you know, because Sochi kind of initially says, like, let's blow up an oil refinery, which, you know, comes from obviously her background. Mm -hmm. And and Sean's like, well, like, that's crazy. Like, that's like that. That's going to kill people. You know, and she's like, yeah. there's collateral damage, you know, to yeah. the climate movement. And he's like, what's are you going to kidnap an oil executive, blow up a private jet? And then they settle on this this pipeline thing. And, mm -hmm. and that was I think that actually 
I don't want to necessarily conceptualize that as more or less radical or or anything like that. I think that what the movie is really setting forth is that for all eight of these characters, what they're doing is a justifiable act of self-defense for eight different reasons. And I think that we are telling that story and we're telling that story from their perspective. But I think that the big kind of development that Andreas made in his book is that when you're thinking about escalating tactics, it's escalating tactics in what direction against whom, because there's no one country or government or person or system that you can really attack here, because we all participate in climate change to a greater or lesser degree, um, just by you know engaging on in, in modern life on this planet. And I think that what Andreas kind of says is, you know, so what is a worthy target if you're going to escalate? And I think that what he then outlines in the book is it's fossil fuel infrastructure. You know, the infrastructure is the thing actually causing the devastation. So there is a justification for attacking infrastructure. And I think that that's the thing that we're dramatizing in the film are eight different people that each have a justification for that. In that, I think it is something that we do want to kind of challenge this question of is what these characters doing violence or is what these characters doing self-defense? And then hopefully in confronting audiences with that question, open up a conversation that can really allow them to kind of extrapolate from there, not just about the climate justice movement, but these questions about how do we engage in, you know, activism um, and how do we really demand social progress in our modern world? Yeah, I think the film does a great job of um, making all these points and raising all these issues without lecturing the the viewer, you know. I, I wondered about the controversy that you might expect from the film. You know, the book has, has, has been controversial and people like to think of environmental protest as, as very passive and peaceful and flowers in your hair and that. But the book makes the point, and you make it in the movie, that protest movements in the past have often been violent and and that's kind of necessary or at least destructive and as andreas puts it it gets peace washed that gets peace washed out in historical accounts i wonder if you could talk about some of those historical examples that that have been peace washed away most of them <laughs> yeah I, I, all the successful ones for sure <laughs> yeah i think and I don't think it's necessarily too productive to focus on any one or the other. I think that there are very, very few kind of social justice movements that you can point to that don't have at least some roots in some capacity in at least, again, at the very least, the sabotage of property. I think that also something that we ultimately, you know, and this came through the editing process of the film is that. Andreas does a, a really, really great job explicating all of that in the book. And I think that we wanted to kind of pay homage to that in the film. But ultimately, I think that the thing that became significantly more relevant for us in the film and as, as filmmakers is kind of the the empathetic reality of these eight characters. And, and then also just like at the end of the day, the historical record is the historical record, but being able to kind of empathize with people in the immediate present who have a good reason for doing what they're doing, I think is significantly more powerful. And something that I think that our culture falls really victim to right now is uh, an over-reliance on a historical narrative or allegorical narrative as a way of understanding the present. And like one of the ways that I put that is like, you have Star Wars, which is one of the biggest movies of all time that involves radical group 
executing a massive act of property destruction <laughs> to take out a planet-destroying machine. And to some extent, I'm like, if, if allegorical cinematic storytelling worked, I think that we would be in a completely different political moment with how we think about radical action. And I think the problem is that sometimes I think allegory actually separates us from the action of the present. Sometimes it, it, it kind of otherizes the action of the present. You know, we can root for the rebel alliance, but we can't actually see the rebel alliance in our own lives. So something that we really believe in is like, how do we, how do we actually get people to have that relationship that they have with these kind of bigger movies, but in the present of our day-to-day -day existence? I think you should pitch for to direct the next Star Wars spin-off. This is the exact thing I don't want to direct them. I want to keep telling stories that take place in our world, more or less. You do you do very well with it though, if you can. I maybe. Andreas Malm was um involved during the production of the movie, right? Uh what's he made of it? Well he played the pipeline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um he's been very supportive and a really great collaborator. And what do you want people to take away from seeing it? I hope as many people as watch Star Wars watch this movie. But what do you want them to do? What if they all go and blow up a pipeline? Well, if they blow up a pipeline, it's not going to be because of this movie. I really hope that people engage with the, with the ideas behind the film and seriously reckon with whether this is the right category of action to engage in, what lengths people will be willing to go to, what targets are good. And if this is something that they don't want to see happen, what is another path forward? that would actually help move the ball. <laughs> I think that uh, part, part of it is that so many people are at this point feeling a great deal of despair. And I think that many of the uh, nonviolent paths that people have been exploring in the past seem a little bit toothless. And so I think uh, seriously reckoning with what, if, if not you know, a solution to this problem, what could provide the, the kind of sense of urgency that is needed um, to pressure people in positions of power to actually enact meaningful changes on a systemic level. I think that also the, in our contemporary moment, there's been a, a lot of pressure on any sort of political film to have a singular message or a singular call to action or a singular impact statement or goal that can then be kind of like immediately evaluated on some sort of metric-based system on whether or not the, the project was a success or a failure. And I think that something that we really feel with this movie is that it's like we tried to make something that has a lot of different points of access. And I think that at the end of the day, you can be an activist and come to the film. And, you know, I think this could be a tool. And this is just feedback we've gotten. Like, you know, activists see the film and they say, you know, this is just a great tool to get people excited about activism, to get people feeling hopeful that like something can be done, whether it's not even necessarily sabotage, you know, and like we've done screenings of the film for activists where we've seen like immediate conversion of people just going out and and joining the movement after seeing the movie, it ranges all the way from people who, you know, might be totally firmly opposed to any sort of, you know, climate action, seeing this and saying, oh, I now understand the kinds of activists that are even engaged in this, all the way through to some of these more kind of deeper philosophical conversations. But ultimately, I think it's really just about getting people thinking about this and getting people thinking about what they can do and, and then taking that those thoughts and those conversations and applying them to whatever their immediate moment and lives are, you know? So I think that we have become very resistant to this notion that there's kind of one impactful of the movie outside of asking this question loudly. That was director Daniel Goldhaber, lead actor and co-screenwriter Ariella Bearer, 
and the movie editor Daniel Garber. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is in cinemas now. I'm Rowan Hooper. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. Do subscribe to all our audio content and we'll see you soon. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.